everyone. My name is Jose Sanchez, and I am going to be your only host for this episode of the Criminology Academy podcast, where we are criminally academic. Unfortunately, Jen was not able to make it for this one, so I'll be flying solo. But in today's episode, we're speaking with Professor Charles Lanfear about communities and crime. Special topics highlighted in this episode include community theories of crime, context and exposure to firearm violence, and reproducibility and open science practices in the discipline of criminology. Charles Lanfear is an assistant professor at the Institute of Criminology in the University of Cambridge. He was previously a research fellow at Newfield College in the University of Oxford after receiving his PhD from the University of Washington in 2021. His primary research focuses on communities, crime, and social control, and has been published in Criminology and the Annual Review of Criminology. Charles is currently researching gun carrying and gun violence over the life course as a member of the Project on Human Development in Chicago Neighborhoods Research Team. The team's first paper on life course exposures to gun violence was published last month in JAMA Network Open. Charles is also an advocate for open science and teaches courses on research design, quantitative methods, and programming for social scientists. All right. Thank you for joining us, Chuck. We're excited to have you on the podcast, and we look forward to our discussion with you. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be on. All right, so we're going to kick off discussing communities and crime. And so this first part of the episode is you know, related to your long-running work on communities and crime. You had a piece in the Annual Review of Criminology in 2020 with Ross Matsueda and Lindsay Beach. And so you note in that piece that there's a contemporary criminological controversy surrounding the interrelationship among neighborhood disorder, informal social control, and crime. And this controversy really stems from two branches of theoretical ideas that explain the interrelationship between these concepts, you know, broken windows and theories of informal social control. You know, and I'm actually really looking forward to hearing your answer on this because you know, I'm teaching a, we call it crime and society, but it's really an introduction to criminal justice course. Mm-hmm. And so whenever we get to policing, we talk about these theories. So, but before we really get into like the nitty gritty of it, you know, want to take a quick step back and discuss some of the buzzwords or key terms that I just dropped. So can you start by explaining what is it that we're talking about when we say neighborhood disorder? Right. So that's sort of like the classic kind of question here. So there's sort of two sides to what is disorder, right? There's objective phenomena, things that are actually like occurring out in space, physical things or or behaviors, and then the meanings people take away from them. So like objectively, it's disorder is sort of a vague blanket term that can mean any of a large number of things or behaviors. It could be things like litter on the ground, graffiti, the proverbial broken window, but also like youth loitering on a corner or abandoned buildings. You know, these are all really different phenomena that all get sort of lumped together. The more complicated thing is the meaning of these things. So as soon as you invoke the word disorder, you're implying it's something unwanted to someone. But beyond that, what that actually means depends on the context and the individual people involved, right? So yeah, and sort of as a result of that, I should say, because there's this variation in objective and subjective elements, different sort of types of disorder can be caused by the same thing or caused by different things. Different types of disorder can cause the same things or cause different things. So like an accumulation of litter or young men out drinking on a street corner might both be caused by a lack of supervision or intervention, but only the young, like the men hanging out and drinking on the corner is likely to turn into a fight. The litter isn't going to spontaneously jump up and start fighting each other or something like that. And also what either means to passerby is context dependent. In some places, young men drink on the street, nobody's going to be bothered by it because they know those kids, they're not going to cause any trouble or something like that. To other places, I've been in neighborhoods where I've run field experiments and people are horrified when there's litter on the ground that they basically will cross the street, you know, to avoid it. So the meanings are different. Yeah. So sort of from a empirical perspective, trying to tease these things out is really challenging and figuring out like what things might cause or not is quite challenging. So that alone is an entire literature on that. Right. And can you tell us a little bit about physical versus social and you know, mm-hmm. how that fits into disorder? Yeah. So the physical versus social dichotomy thing is this idea that 
there's this physical disorder that manifests as things like litter, graffiti, broken windows, or also vacant lots and abandoned buildings. These are sort of features of the environment that aren't people or behaviors. Social disorder is typically things that are people, more specifically things people are doing. So in the classic broken windows article, Wilson and Kelling talked about things like panhandling, loitering on the street, drug dealing, and prostitution. So it's just kind of one of them is behavioral. The other one is sort of evidence of a behavior. Like litter is evidence that somebody littered, which is a behavior. A broken window, somebody broke it, and so on. Right. All right. So Clifford Shaw and Henry McKay, they're pretty much the people who introduced what we call social disorganization theory to the discipline coming out of the Chicago School, borrowing some concepts from, you know, from their colleagues, specifically the concentric circle that, you know, I think anyone that's taken a, you know, CRIM 101 class or CRIM Theory 101 class has seen the circle with like the red dots that show the concentration of crime. And so, you know, what they did was they took a map of Chicago, kind of were going through court cases for juveniles and kind of just like I know this is probably a super foreign concept to a lot of people listening to this now, but, you know, they actually had a physical map, not Google Maps, like an actual paper map and had little push pins that they would put into it. Like, you know, there was no computers when Sean McKay were doing this. And so after they you know, put all the pins in the map, they observed where crime and delinquency appear to be most heavily concentrated in Chicago. You know, can you, you know, give us like a rundown of what conclusions Sean McKay reached based on their mapping? Yeah, so this is one of the most like monumental achievements in data collection. I remember seeing, you know, the maps, everything, but also, I mean, the book is fantastic. If you read it, it's, a, it's an amazing set of data collection. But the basic thing that they observed was what they did is they figured out and mapped the residences of where kids who would say basically like convicted or gone to juvenile court, so juvenile delinquents, where the juvenile delinquents lived. So not where they committed crime, which is something we often focus on where crimes happen. They were focused on where the delinquents live. That is, what is the process of generating delinquency? And from seeing that they were that like delinquents were essentially where they lived, were clustered in these neighborhoods, they went and they looked at what characterizes these neighborhoods. Basically, they were unstable, disadvantaged areas that over time had transitioned, had racial and ethnic turnover throughout, but consistently had high rates of delinquency. And these areas were characterized by social and physical disorder, having many delinquents, and having an age-graded transmission of delinquency occurring within. So sort of gangs that have older kids training younger kids into it. So basically, they came up with a theory of the production of delinquents as much as of delinquency itself. Again, since you know, I kind of head in that direction. Can you, you know, give us a rundown of, and I mentioned social disorganization theory. So can you give us a rundown of that? And as I would say, I don't know how controversial it is, but I know it has caused some controversy, but you know, there's inclusion of cultural transmission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's sometimes the touchy one, but the basic theory is a multi-level theory. The idea is that like the classic Things are poverty, heterogeneity, and population turnover is what modern models kind of use. These things lead to weak and uncoordinated institutions. These are things like family and schools, community organizations, and them being weak and uncoordinated makes it harder to regulate the behavior, particularly of kids, mostly boys. So when they're in these sorts of conditions of weak institutions, you get more delinquency because kids are poorly monitored. The thing is, is poorly monitored kids tend to flock together with other poorly monitored kids, resulting in things like the formation of youth gangs. And the thing is, is gangs are persistent. Members change over time, but they tend to be sort of locationally defined, like a particular neighborhood has a particular gang of kids. The older kids bring in younger kids into the gang, teach them and sort of socialize them in certain ways. And this creates this sort of age grade. That's the cultural transmission element of it, which John McKay based on Sutherland's differential association theory. So this sort of theory of social disorder and cultural transmission at the time was a really progressive theory because it was saying basically it's about social context and social processes, but it has nothing to do with race or race specific cultural type things. They were saying if you swap out the race, ethnicity, or thing of the kids, the same process of work will be the same. It was also for the time extremely advanced empirically. It was actually mixed methods. They did spatial quantitative analysis. Not only did they do those maps by hand, they calculated correlations 
transitions by hand, you know, from this incredible spatial data. They also did early network analysis and they linked these things to qualitative life histories of the delinquents. So it's actually really empirically grounded in the evidence for, for that kind of work at the time. In my opinion, this is like this book, if you ever tried to find it, often libraries don't have it. Good luck buying a copy of it. I've been telling Rob for this Rob Sampson for a while that we need to reprint get this book reprinted because he just can't get it. And there's no digital edition, but yeah, that's the general theory. Yeah. I want to say I have a copy, but I'm not sure if I do, I might, I might have to cash in. Yeah. Ross left me a copy. I have a 1960, was it 67 or 69? I forget the second print never, but it's rare. I saw one online for like $400 in bad condition. Yeah. Like I was gifted a first edition thrasher. Yeah. Collecting like classics is, a hobby of mine. And, you know, I often give David, my advisor, not a hard time, but every now and then I'll mention that I, so I managed to pick up a Kornhauser for about 20 bucks. He had to pay 200 for his copy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got a Kornhauser up there and I've got a, my crowning glory is a first edition Sutherland criminology up there, which is like the 1920, uh, whatever. Yeah. I, yeah I, same thing. I'm, I love the classic books. Yeah, I've been hunting for one of those. I have one of the, I think, uh, I think the earliest I've been able to get fourth edition. But anyway, like, I don't want to turn this into a book hunting episode. But yeah, I love collecting the classics. Okay, so back to, you know, Sean McKay and their theory. Oh, I think what prompted the Kornhauser thing is, you know, I wrote one of my comps on social disorganization, and I kind of sided with Kornhauser a little bit. And Let's just kind of ignore the control transmission stuff. That's kind of unnecessary, but I think that's a completely different episode in and of itself. (laughs) But, you know, so Sean McKay, they didn't actually spend a lot of time focusing on the informal social control mechanisms of their theory. So, and I think this was actually somewhat common during the time. Like, you know, Sutherland often gets critiqued for being kind of vague, like what is the definition And so it's kind of been left to us to kind of start to fill in those gaps. So in the 80s, we started seeing scholars trying to build on or improve or clarify social disorganization. You know, one way that scholars tried to do this was by illuminating the social mechanisms by which social disorganization in a neighborhood actually contributed to high crime rates. What exactly does a lack of informal social control actually look like, right? Like that's kind of the central question. Well, two scholars that tried to do this, Samson and Roddenbush, they put forward their idea of collective efficacy, which combines informal social control with social cohesion. Can you tell us in more detail how collective efficacy ties in with disorder, informal social control, and crime? Yeah, so collective efficacy is sort of interesting. It emerges ideas from social disorganization theory with these ideas from social capital theory that were sort of emerging in the late 80s, early 90s, some stuff which is implicit from like Coleman and things like that. So it differs from social disorganization in some key ways, but one of the main contributions it sort of brings is sort of clarifying this causal mechanism that translates social context into crime and disorder that was frequently critiqued in social disorganization and something that was responded to by Kornhauser and then operationalizations of Kornhauser's model like Sampson and Groves, 1989. So collective efficacy is this sort of latent capacity for action rooted in social capital, capital being like trusting your neighbors, cohesion, expectations for action. And Social capital is specific to tasks. Like you might have a friend who's good for supporting you socially, but you're not going to get a job through them, but another friend you could get a job through. It's Mm -hmm. task specific. With collective efficacy, we're typically focused on crime control and things relevant to the control of crime. The basic idea here with collective efficacy is that places where people share norms and are empowered to enforce those norms exhibit lower crime. And thus, Rather than focusing on the production of delinquents like Sean McKay did, the focus in collective efficacy is on control of behavior within places. So this is a big difference. This implies, for instance, that a place with high collective efficacy may produce delinquents. They're just not going to offend there. They might go somewhere else in the event. So it's quite different from social disorganization, which is more focused on processes of socialization and upbringing. So collective efficacy also is a macro theory. It's not very specific about micro-level mechanisms. Sometimes 
sometimes they're usually applied to be things like interventions. This is both a direct that's going on and yelling on kids on the street, but it also includes the invocation of formal authority. So collective advocacy does encompass calling the police. There's also mechanisms that aren't related to intervening at all, which is norms. If you know a place is a place you are likely to have the police called on you, you don't go there or don't defend. And so there's a normative protection thing. You're aware of people's capacity. Like my ongoing theoretical and empirical work, a lot of it is on specifying these mechanisms that operates through turning from a macro theory into a macro micro theory. So I had a paper last year in criminology that was about bringing in environmental opportunity and urban political economy into it. Um, talking about how collective efficacy might be used to alter the built environment. This is something that ongoing research. I'm also presenting at the European Society of Criminology in September on unifying micro-macro theories and collective efficacy, broken windows, and routine activity theory, all kind of speak in the same language. So this is like active for me. Right. Yeah. Really interesting paper. You know, unfortunately, we didn't have enough time to, or we won't have enough time to get to it, but we will link it in the episode description on our website, because it is a really good paper, you know, macro, micro thinking. I know Samson's a big proponent of it. And I would say that, I don't know who wouldn't be like, I feel like it's one of those things. I'm sure there's someone that's out there like, no, (laughs) but okay. So, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but if I'm understanding this correctly, focusing on this order is misguided and maybe a little bit of a false errand. And instead, we should be focusing on building trust and cohesion within the neighborhood. The question is how, right? And so this is something that I'll probably talk about later in it, but it's sort of like, it's great the idea of being able to build trust and cohesion, but it's not something that's easily manipulable, right? You know, it's hard to go and be like, oh, let's build trust and cohesion. And the other thing is that if you base things on requiring people to intervene to solve problems, in a way, you're kind of saying well, why don't we just let those people solve their own problems? So high collective efficacy neighborhoods are often characterized by simply not having anything you have to intervene against. You know, so like the classic, or for me, one of the urban political economy examples is nobody tries to like open a liquor store in a rich neighborhood in your city because they know it's never going to work. You know, one, they might not even have a thing, but why bother? Because they're just going to fight it until it doesn't work. You can't even get an apartment building built in a neighborhood like that. So they have so much power, both like social and political, that you don't even need to do anything. So one of the challenges here is, you know, it's, the places that have to work the least are often the places with the most capacity to do things. And the places with the least capacity to do things are the ones where the most effort would be required. So the question really for me is, how do we reduce the amount of like work people have to do rather than making it easier for them to do that work? My personal opinion. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I think now we can kind of get to the flip side or the alternative where we have Wilson and Kelling's broken window thesis which says that disorder and crime are direct-led or causally linked, as well as indirectly linked. Can you give us a you know quick summary of the Broken Windows Theory thesis? Yeah. So to lead into it, first I'll say in collective efficacy, the basic theory there is that both crime and disorder are caused essentially by a low capacity to control those things. Contrast this with Broken Windows, which says Yes, this is true. There's a low capacity to control, but the system is more complicated. Broken windows is actually a multi-level theory that is about effects of context on individual perception. The idea in broken windows is that if a person, say, walking through a neighborhood or, or who lives in a neighborhood sees disorder, they interpret disorder of different types as a signal that the area is poorly regulated or monitored, which makes sense. If nobody prevented that disorder or whatever being on the street, those kids in there, then obviously, you know, it looks like nobody's trying to stop it. So if you're somebody who's considering offending, it makes sense to want to offend in a place where it looks like nobody goes out and stops you versus a place that's well-regulated, looks like people might stop you. So basically, from a deterrence mechanism, you could say disorder reduces the perceived certainty of intervention and receiving sanctioning. However, if you're somebody who's not interested in offending, you see that same signal saying a place is poorly regulated and you might worry about being a victim because if nobody's going to stop people from offending, somebody else who wants to offend it. So it's being interpreted the same way between people. So rationally, you might want to avoid places that are more risky, but if you avoid those places and everyone avoids those places, there actually is a lower likelihood of people intervening and actually makes it less regulated. So there's a perceptual side and they actually 
there's fewer people there. So it's an elegant theory because it's very intuitive because Wilson and Kellen were writing not to an academic audience, but to a public audience. It's compelling. It's well-written. The whole thing, though, hinges on this interpretation of disorder. Do people see disorder and interpret it in this way, which is usually the controversy around it. Right. Can't remember exactly. Was it The Atlantic? Yeah. Where it was published? 1982. Yeah. So it wasn't like it wasn't an academic journal that this was released in. And that's maybe why it caught fire the way that it did, because, it, you know, this wasn't behind some paywall for, you know, one of those like major journal companies. Like this was in a basically a media outlet. Yeah. Wilson is a major conservative thinker in the area of government and policing. You know, he ran a long time and it's fundamentally, it's a paper about policing. The theory is almost, you know, it's there and it's embedded in it, but it's almost, it's sort of a explanation for why policing should be used in a particular way. But the focus is very much on community policing, basically. Right. And that's kind of what you know, I feel like you often hear broken windows theory and broken windows policing kind of used interchangeably. I think there's a little distinction there, but it kind of, you know, gave rise to broken windows policing. And I believe it was in 2014 where I think Kelling actually said, because broken windows theory has actually gotten a lot of backlash because of the way that it's been implemented by police departments. But in 2014, Kelling came out and said, yeah, that's not exactly what we were saying. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you took what we were saying and you kind of became like this overzealous, like zero tolerance policy that wasn't exactly what we were trying to advocate for yeah if you read the actual article and read it carefully and critically it is remarkable the sorts of policing that often got done in the name of it when you read it i mean they say sort of you need to make sure that your policing isn't racially biased you need to make sure that it's enforcing community norms not outside norms that's all in the article and then you see what was done with it and you're like Oh, this doesn't really make much sense, but, you know, so it goes. Yeah, I think, you know, they probably read the, you have to police the real minor stuff to avoid getting it snowballing into something bigger. That's and what like, they wanted to like, stop there. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> oh, we have our marching orders. Here we go. Okay, so based on your review of experimental and observational studies and on disorder and informal control and crime, what conclusions did you reach about the state of this body of work? It's mixed. I think that evidence is, uh, so this is going to be, it's not, in some ways, it's an unsatisfying answer. I think evidence is weaker for informal control and broken windows theories than many proponents argue, but it's also stronger than many, of, or if not most opponents argue in, in a number of these pathways. So with regard to broken windows, I think evidence is pretty poor for a direct broken windows effect. That is the, especially based the interpretive mechanism of seeing that. One of the best things on this, in my opinion, is Peter K.B. St. John's Pockets of Crime, which basically he was like, well, if we're thinking that offenders might recognize disorder as a sign essentially of opportunity, why don't I just go and interview active offenders and ask them if disorder signals opportunity? It's the most, the simplest sign, you know, idea. And he finds, no, they base it entirely off of different things. It's extremely compelling evidence. It's a glorious book. Evidence for the indirect effect in broken windows is a little bit better. That is for disorder, perhaps causing reductions in social control capacity. In my opinion, the best evidence for broken windows is actually based on opportunity mechanisms, which are outside the original theory. These are technically different micromechanisms. This is saying that some forms of disorder generate opportunities for crime. Again, it's the thing I was saying earlier about if you've got a bunch of kids drinking on the street corner, well, drinking kids get together like that and maybe they get in a stupid argument, they get in a fight or maybe some, you know, something like that. It's like conflicts like that. That's an opportunity mechanism. It's not based on deterrence. It's based on some things provide objective opportunities. And some of the experimental work that's been done, like John McDonald and Charles Bron- Charlie Bronis's work in Philly with the uh, abandoned building and vacant lot remediation sort of is based on these kinds of ideas. There's some other good work like that. I think that's more compelling. The sort of key thing we brought out of this is it's really hard to study these things. It's actually really difficult to test community theories, which is why I love this area and why I'm in it. It's the puzzles are so difficult. I find it's a fantastic place to be. And the reason for that is most of the key factors we're interested in, things like social control, aren't really manipulable directly in experiments, and especially not at scale. You might be able to manipulate disorder in a small area, but you can't go and like 
drop a helicopter full of garbage on an entire neighborhood, right? You can't do that kind of intervention. And broken windows is macro in its perspective, saying it's entire neighborhoods, you know, you can't manipulate those things plausibly. So you figure, try and figure out how you can get at these things. So it's really difficult. I think that there's good, there's evidence for informal social control, but when people test it narrowly in some ways, it, it doesn't necessarily work because the mechanisms are more complex. So it's mixed, but I think there's a lot of opportunity for good work in these areas. The main thing is realizing where are the gaps, which, you know, I think we kind of get at some of that. Right. You know, so, you know, while we're on that topic, what would you say is next for the research on disorder, informal social control and crime? Like, what are the questions that we should be answering at this point? Yeah. So in my opinion, as somebody who's very much into this micro macro stuff and analytical sociology and criminology, I think the big thing is, you know, we have to hit the theory hard, get precise with our concepts, precise with our mechanisms. Our macro theories are incomplete without micro links. So figuring out how these macro things influence individual behavior and situations, the work, the theory is incomplete without it. And this includes both macro micro. So how does something like neighborhood context influence individual behavior? It's also incomplete without knowing how individual behavior influences macro context. So what are the conditions that generate real social context in neighborhoods? So this is basically we need research to get at what generates situations like selection into situations. So why do people go to places they do and interact the way that they do? Emergence within situations. How do people learn and communicate things and knowledge about areas? And also, I mean, this micro macro stuff is also goes above and beyond like higher level than collective efficacy and broken windows. What is it that generates these neighborhoods in this way in the first place, which is urban political economy to me is something I'm very interested in. You know, what are the processes by which or the urban environment is generated the way it is. So that's the theory side of it. Empirically, I think we should also hammer mechanisms. We need better measures. We need to embed. Big one I'm a bad advocate for and have done a lot of myself is embedding field experiments, but also qualitative work inside of large-scale survey data collection and other administrative data. So put your experiments in places you have ecological data. Do qualitative work alongside your experiments and your survey data to figure out mechanisms. Qualitative work is one of the best ways to get at mechanisms, which is really vital for this. Also collect novel measures like mobility. You know, something like collective efficacy is about crime, like not happening here because there's control. But Sean McKay's social disorganization, like said, delinquents are generated in certain places. But if they all just have really good transit and go commit crime elsewhere, that's an important thing to know. But to know that, we need to know where people go. And then the big one, I think, which is there's been some good criticism, I think, of the entire vein of social disorganization literature from Eck and co-authors recently is how do we make any of this stuff even relevant to fixing any problems? So as I said before, it's hard to manipulate collective efficacy or something. Well, how does that make it like relevant to solving it? Is it something we can manipulate and do it? I'm a big, very interested in basic science, not necessarily how can I change things to reduce crime, but it is a good question. It might be the case that this informal social control stuff is really powerful and important, but the process is so endogenous and self-reinforcing that it's not really amenable to small-scale intervention, and maybe you need larger-scale sorts of social change, which I had to do that stuff. Anyway, so a lot, lot of area to reward. Right. Yeah, I think that's great. I think it's interesting because it's something that in some ways I've kind of always been a part of but haven't always sort of recognized that was a part of it so you know anyone that's listened to this for any amount of time knows that I really started off as like a gang scholar that's kind mm-hmm. of really what my research focus was I've kind of broadened it a little bit more to community violence in general you know which gang violence tends to be a big part of but you know I got my start doing research with the gang reduction and youth development program in Los Angeles Right. And so like their whole thing is we're going to identify what are essentially gang hotspots throughout the city. And we're going to like dump all resources into those. They call them grid zones, but, you know, they're essentially, you know, gang hotspots. And so, but yeah, trying to, but something that, and I'm also a big proponent of, you know, like the mixed methods approach. So here in Denver, we conducted a randomized control trial on the gang reduction program here. And we also did a qualitative data collection. That was kind of what my job ended up being. So I was spearheading the qualitative stuff. And we ended up with these, what you would consider counterintuitive findings, because we found the people that go through the program, we saw reductions in violence, but we saw gang embeddedness move in the wrong direction. 
and active gang membership was also in the wrong direction. And so, you know, the question that becomes, well, it's a gang program. So on the surface, these gang findings are not exactly what you would hope to see, but the behavior is trending in the right direction. And so, you know, part of my dissertation is to kind of try and with all the qualitative data is to kind of try and see if we can disentangle, well, how did we end up here, right? And so, you know, we have a few ideas, a few hypotheses as to why that is. And so now it's kind of my job to kind of just sift through like three years of qualitative data and you know, try to offer an explanation as to why that is. Yeah, that's fun. I love, that's one of those things that I love and whenever possible people should do is embed this qualitative data collection alongside RCTs and things because you can just get so much insight. It's like, it's one thing to know a treatment didn't do what you want to do, but it's another thing to know why and what else that you might not have been looking at that it may or may not have done. Granted, that then makes you then maybe we need to do another RCT later because, you know, you don't kind of have the same advantages of the RCT setup. It's so important to do that stuff when you can. And I imagine you're going to find a pile of really interesting stuff doing that. So it's going to be super cool. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, one of the things that we kind of started to, you know, think about was, you know, like this is an individual level program, right? Like, so it's only working with individuals, but it's so one of the things that we we're discussing was well, it's a lot harder to change like the gang landscape, right? Like the right. communities. And then we started seeing a lot of this conflating of the gang with the community. And so like this being intertwined. And so yeah, so trying to like disentangle that relationship of the community and the gang and how it's impacting the individuals. And so kind of and then so then I started to really look into like the macro theory stuff, like the social disorganization, yeah. organization you know, routine activity, kind of how can we set the stage for what we're seeing here, you know, in Denver? So real interesting stuff. Okay, so now we're going to pivot a little bit and want talk about, you know, some of the work that you've done, like with context and gun violence, you know, working with the PHDCN project on human development in Chicago neighborhoods. So, you know, so when we were emailing and, you know, setting up the episode, you mentioned that a lot of your time has been devoted to work that you have been doing on this project, PHDCN. Can you tell us more about the project itself, you know, just in general terms and the work that you specifically are doing? Yeah. So the PHDCN is one of the largest data collection efforts in the social sciences and in, in sort of in recent decades. So it's focused on Chicago, but it constituted a community survey, actually sort of two waves of a community survey of 8,000 plus people, a cohort study, which followed 6,000 plus kids of ages 0, 3, 6, 9, 12, 15, and 18 in 1995, and followed them for now a very long time. Also, systematic social observation. That's like videotaping streets and coding what they find to get disorder measures, and also interviews of elite networks in Chicago. It's an incredibly comprehensive effort. The main work I'm involved on is the continuation of the cohort study. So in this cohort study, which started in 1995, 1996, basically started tracking kids in the 95, 96 we now have completed the fifth wave of data collection in 2021 with cohorts of kids who were born in 1981, 1984, 1987, and 1996. So their age in 2021 is between 25 and 40. And these kids were tracked from when they were between at birth or from before they were born from 15. So we have this huge span of time covered, which, which allows us to do a lot of cool stuff on the life course. The current focus with the fifth wave has been on guns and gun violence over the life course, but we're also doing work on legal cynicism, experiences with the legal system, physical and mental health. So it's sort of a rare opportunity to observe people with these really rich measures over a very long period of time when the sort of historical context was changing a lot across this time. So a lot of neat stuff going on. Yeah. I'd be lying if I didn't say I was a little jelly. That sounds like such an awesome project. Okay, and as you know, part of the research team, you recently published a paper, you know, on life course exposures to gun violence with colleagues Rebecca Bucci, who's a TCA alum, David Kirk, and Robert Sampson, who also is a TCA alum. And the paper's titled "Inequalities in Exposure to Firearm Violence by Race, Sex, and Birth Cohort from Childhood to Age 40, 1995 to 2021." You know, in this paper, 
The authors examine race, sex, and cohort differences in exposure to firearm violence, as well as spatial proximity to firearm violence in adulthood. To do so, they use a representative longitudinal study of just over 2,400 children from the PHDCN. The participants included Black, Hispanic, and white correspondents from Chicago, Illinois, in 4-H cohorts with modal birth years of, you know, like Chuck just mentioned, 81, 84, 87, and 96. So we're going to start off our discussion of this paper with a question on historical context. How has gun violence changed over time as it relates to the four age cohorts you were examining in this study? I mean, it's changed so much over the period. So this is one of the things that's a strength of the study with regard to violence and gun violence in particular. So up until fairly recently, the prior peak of gun violence in the United States was this early 1990s period. So in the early 1990s, our oldest cohort born in 1981 were sort of just coming into their teens, their maximum period of potential exposure to violence. But then our 1984 and 1987 cohorts came of age in this rapid decline of violence in the late 90s and then entered this stably low period of violence in the early 2000s. So they were high, much more shielded from serious violence. But then violence surged again. Gun violence just shot up in 2016 and then really shot up in 2020. Uh, Actually, in 2020, Chicago even passed the level of gun homicides in the early 1990s to reach their highest level that we have recorded in our data. Our young cohort was born in 1996. So these spikes in 2016 and 2020 got in their sort of early 20s was, again, a high exposure period for violence. So it's sort of lining up where there's just tremendous intercohort difference in the social context of violence. How many respondents in your study had been shot or had seen someone get shot? Yeah, this one's kind of crazy. So we estimated 6.5% of respondents in the study had been shot by age 40 and 50% had seen someone shot by age 40. So these are event history models. So they're accounting for censoring, basically. It's not the exact count, but it's the percentage of them. If you weight these estimates to the population composition of Chicago, we can estimate that for the sort of cross-section of kids who were alive in Chicago at this time, if you projected them forward to age 40, we would estimate 46% of kids in that situation have seen someone get shot by 40 in the city of Chicago. So this is not present residents of Chicago, but if you grew up in Chicago of these ages in the 90s, we'd estimate 46% of people had seen someone shot by the time they turned 40. Yeah, that's that's just like a pretty big number. (laughs) It's huge. Yeah. And, you know, when it came to race and or sex, did you see any differences in exposure to firearm violence? I mean, it's huge. So the race, ethnicity and sex differences are big. So over 7% of our non-Hispanic Black and Hispanic respondents had been shot and 55% had seen someone shot compared to 3% of our non-Hispanic White respondents had been shot in 25%. So half, less than half as many had seen someone get shot. So exposure differences are very large, more than double for non-Hispanic Black and Hispanic respondents. And then on sex differences, enormous differences, some you would expect and some you might not. So 11% of our males had been shot, estimated by age 40, and 2% of women shot, huge difference, you know, five times. But the differences in seeing people get shot are small. 58% of male respondents and 43% of female respondents. So this means female exposure to, to seeing shootings is much larger than like shooting victimization data indicates. Women are much more exposed than we would get if we just looked at statistics on people getting shot, basically. Right. Yeah, those are, again, pretty big numbers. Okay, so given you know that we just discussed that you, you were looking at different age cohorts, I think it'd be reasonable to expect to see differences in exposure to firearm violence based on cohort differences. Were there any differences on exposure based on the age cohort? Yeah, and so this is something, again, sort of like what I was starting to get out before was our 1981 cohort sort of came of age in the period of peak violence in Chicago in the 90s. And correspondingly, they have the highest exposure to gun violence, both being shot and seen shootings in it. Because gun violence declined rapidly in the early 90s, exposure is substantially lower for 1984 and especially the 1987 cohort. The 1987 cohort was at its highest risk years in the lowest period of gun violence in Chicago in the last you know 30 plus years. But then gun violence surged up in 2016 and 2020 and 
Corresponding to that, the 1996 cohort is more highly exposed. They look a lot more like the 1984 and 1981 cohort. They're much more exposed. No. Yeah, so it seems to be large cohort differences. All right. And then I'm guessing the race and sex up holds pretty steady across the cohorts. Like or uh, yeah, within any... the differences are fairly proportional within the cohorts. Yeah, we didn't see any like interactions with uh cohort and race or sex. It's sort of fairly stable. Okay, so in, in 2021, the fifth wave interviews were conducted. Your research team obtained all incidents of gun violence throughout the US that occurred within 250 meters or miles. Meters. Meters. Yeah. I have like a horrific sense of distance. So it actually doesn't even matter if it's miles. There's no way for me to even like imagine what that is. So, okay. It's about the full length, diagonal length of a Chicago city block. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure that helped people that are actually more specially competent than I am. Uh, (laughs) Okay. So gun violence throughout the years that occurred within 250 meters of the respondents addresses in the year prior to the fifth wave interview did you find any disparities in race, sex, or cohort as they relate to the spatial proximity to farm violence in adulthood? Yeah, for race ethnicity differences, it's even more exaggerated than what I was just talking about before. So, so this is like this is where they are currently living in the time that they're surveyed. And then what we did is we looked over the past year within 250 meters, you know, how many shootings happen. And what we find is quite large differences. Basically, the rate of nearby shootings in the past year was 12 times as high for non-Hispanic black respondents versus white respondents, and four times as high for Hispanic respondents versus non-Hispanic whites. And it started to see. So we have some maps in the paper showing what a representative neighborhood of the maximum quintile of exposure looks like for white, Hispanic, and non-Hispanic Black. And there's dots for every shooting that happened nearby these particular respondents. And for the white ones, it's one shooting. For the Hispanic ones, it's two shootings. And for the non-Hispanic Black respondent, I mean, that map has like 20 shootings visible on the map. It's just, it's startling that the different sort of places, these higher rate of shootings is a function of the really large differences in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods that people of different race ethnicities live in. So tying back to what we were talking about earlier with Sean McKay, sort of as Sean McKay described in the 40s and say Peterson and Crevo echoed in 2010, it's sort of impossible to reproduce in white communities the circumstances under which Black children live. So it's just, there's nothing comparable. There is the most disadvantaged white respondents don't live in anything like the most disadvantaged black or Hispanic respondents. Another thing is that our white respondents much more often moved out of Chicago entirely. So we follow them no matter where they went in the country. And the white respondents were much more likely to move out of Chicago and thus move to more safe areas because the shootings are highly concentrated in sort of dense parts of Chicago. Right. Okay. And, you know, given everything that we've just run through, what are some of the implications of the study you know, for research, but maybe also for policy and practice? Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is that, and this is, I was just talking to a reporter about this yesterday. So media and often research and sometimes research often focus on fatal shootings, but that's only one form of exposure. And also there's a, a big focus in the media, especially on mass shootings, which constitute less than 2% of shooting fatalities and injuries. And they're very different from most shootings. Non-fatal victimization and witnessing gun violence is pervasive. There is a lot of it going on. So it's important and worth researching the effects that these things have on people's health and well-being, and also on like their future gun use. You know, your kids growing up, you with a lot of shootings nearby end up more likely to carry guns and use guns later. Another thing on this is that given the high exposure that women see, I think it's really important to emphasize doing work on effects on women, which is sometimes understudied because people generally assume, well, it's men doing the shooting and men getting shot. So we would expect to see lower things. But if you're seeing a population where 40% of the women are seeing people get shot, you should probably be looking into what effect that's having. Another big theme I think we're coming out of here that applies to research and also generally thinking about crime and violence, it's really important not just 
things about yourself and like where you live and where you are, but when you were born and when you grew up. There's patterns over the life course that differ by historical period, and these patterns also differ by race and sex. There's sort of an interaction between historical period and demographic characteristics of people. Rob's really, that's Rob Sampson, has really been focusing on this lately. I think he's getting at this in the book that he's writing right now. Context matters for people, and historical period is about the biggest context there is. Okay, There are also policy implications to the sort of life course thinking, right? So if you address early contexts, the benefits pay off over the entire life course of people. If you can prevent people from being exposed to violence when they're very young, then that carries forward for the rest of their life. Inter the later you intervene, the less of a, you know, a person's life you can impact. So early intervention. Another sort of research implication, I think, from this paper is descriptive work is good. This paper is a purely descriptive. It's not a hypothesis testing paper. What we were just trying to do is say, how much violence have people been exposed to over the last, you know, 30 years, you know, from childhood? What's it look like? So I was fortunate enough to be trained as a demographer when I was at the University of Washington, my PhD program, which is something I would recommend, you know, early students do is looking at something like demographic training. It'll teach you to do careful descriptive work and to care about descriptive work more than often like criminologists and sociologists often sort of look down on descriptive work. It's some of the most useful, important stuff you can do. Another thing here for people, a lot of people out there, and I, I teach fancy methods. I teach causal inference and stuff. We did survival curves in here. This is the most basic, simple like analysis methods. These things can be so useful. Just basic descriptive patterns. Anybody can look at these things and interpret. You know, I can hand this. I've had so many news interviews on this because people look at the numbers and they can interpret them immediately. 46%, 50% of people seeing someone shot. That's crazy. It draws a lot of attention to things. That mm. simple stuff and descriptive stuff communicates and does important work. It might not be, you know, theory testing, but the impact is something potentially very important. Another thing I think that's important to know about and research should be doing is it's really important to know about the causes of exposure. So, you know, it's we know that these people are exposed this way, but what is it that's driving the differences in, you know, race and sex exposure? And one of the things I'm really interested in, I think people could chase is residential selection. Why do people live in these places where they end up being exposed? This is particularly for the gun violence in 2021. Like I said, most of our white respondents moved out of Chicago, moved to safer places. Most of our non-Hispanic, Black and Hispanic respondents didn't move out of these places. Why is that happening? So this has to do with segregation and residential mobility. And I'm interested, you know, how do those things impact violence? But also, how does violence impact segregation and mobility? You know, if white folk have the ability to move out when a shooting happens in the neighborhood and they can do it, but other people can't, it increases segregation and that mobility is a way that actually concentrates the violence in particular populations. So this is something I think we, you know, got have to think about and have to look into. And of course, broadly inspiring policy and practice. That is an awful lot of people seeing people get shot. That's an awful lot of people being shot. Interventions to things to deal with the violence. It's critical that these things be done quickly and sort of triage these things because this is very high levels of exposure. And especially now we're seeing this big surge in 2016, 2020, 2021. We might be seeing spillover effects of these sorts of things for many years to come as kids now growing up are being exposed. Thankfully, I think I've seen some early evidence that it sort of dropped a little bit this last year, but we'll see what the summer brings. So that's super interesting. Yeah, I'd be interested to see, especially the mobility aspect, you know, as you were talking about it, it just made me, it made me think of my parents. So my parents still live in my childhood home, like they haven't moved. And, you know, I grew up in, it was formerly known as South Central, now renamed yeah. South Los Angeles, because city council thought changing the name would somehow make all the associations with gang violence just disappear. It's yeah. not even geographically correct. <laughs> but, you know, anyway, so you know, I grew up right in this little unincorporated area called Florence Graham. So not even technically the city of Los Angeles. We are overseen by the county of Los Angeles. But my neighborhood is where this gang, Florencia 13, Florence 13, like they actually started have started to gain some notoriety. And you can even find them out here in, in Denver. But my neighborhood's where they started. And, you know, we had shootings. There were, you know, there were turf battles with other surrounding gangs. You walk through my neighborhood, you won't find a single house that doesn't have window bars and like iron gates. And so, you know, I just talking about the mobility part of it, it just made me think of like my, my parents who have been living there for 30 some years now. 
And, you know, like, why haven't you, like, this neighborhood's not exactly, <laughs> you know, it's not great. Why haven't you left? You know, I just kind of want to laugh because they're like, because our rent hasn't gone up in over three decades. Yeah. Well, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, it has, but, you know, we live in Los Angeles. Like, we're in a two-bedroom house paying, like, $1,200, you know, like, <laughs> but it kind of gets to, but really, I think the underlying message was, this is what we can afford, right? Like, yeah. if we, like if we could move to a nicer area, we would, but, you know, we can't, you know, like my mom doesn't work, my dad. So it's like a one income household. So, you know, it'd be nice, but yeah. we can't, right? So. Yeah. And thinking about that, so that sort of, you know, what is the individual sort of, you know, process, which is, you know, and it's related to the context about, you know, it's your ability to move or your desire to stay and how you, you know, relate to your environment like that. I mean, it's, yeah, it's complicated thing. And what does that mean for, you know, kids growing up in these environments and things like that? It's, yeah, and of course, the changing historical context of LA, you know, over the, you know, think about what, you know, obviously has happened to rent prices in LA in the last 25 plus years, you know, it, it's wild. So yeah, all these things play together in these really complicated ways. And it's, yeah, it's interesting to think about. It's hard to study, but it's interesting to think about. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right. So we're going to make another pivot and we're going to talk about something else that's of interest to you. And I think I would say should be of interest to most of us, and that is reproducibility and open science practices in criminology. So, of course, as we prep for these episodes, we Google people before we talk to them just to kind of of do our homework a little bit, do a little investigative work. And, you know, you have a website, so it actually wasn't super hard to, you know, find out a few things about you. But one of the things that we learned is that you're actually pretty committed to reproducible research. You know, you supply all of your course and workshop materials on your personal website. You have a GitHub profile. And we noticed that you have coding for a lot of the work that you've done available. And this reproducibility in open science, I think, has really started to gain a lot of steam over the last few years. And, you know, I'm not super active. Like I'm on Twitter, not super active tweeting wise, but I do like to scroll at least a couple of times a day. And it's pretty common to see debates about open science come up. And, you know, I've seen people say things like, we don't want to become the next psychology. And, you know, what they're referring to is psychology is going through a reproducibility crisis, right? People are starting to, or had started to reproduce some of like the classic work that had been done and kind of started to find out like, oh, the things that we've been citing for like decades are actually not, holding up or not being able to be reproduced. And so they entered a reproducibility crisis. So what are your thoughts on, you know, where's criminology? Like, are we headed towards a crisis? Are we like actually in a crisis? You know, kind of what are your thoughts of the state of the field? Yeah. So with regard to the crisis, I'd say we're not exactly in a crisis, despite some high profile events that have happened in the last few years, retracted papers and things like that. I don't think we're in a crisis. There's a lot of room to improve. But I think one of the things is it's less that the field has sort of got itself into a crisis exactly as there's a growing understanding of the importance of doing these things. And the complexity of projects has increased greatly over the last 30 plus years to the point where it's getting more and more important to, to sort of have a record of these things. I mean, the code base of a project has gotten enormous. I mean, I have papers that have, you know, 10,000 lines of code in them and stuff like that. It's just like, that's insane. You know, you have to put that stuff out because mistakes matter. I think one thing criminology benefits from is that we're a multidisciplinary discipline. So practices like reproducible research and a focus on replication, also on the sort of causality revolutions that have happened in disciplines like economics and political science, these things all leak into criminology from every side as all these different interdisciplinary people come in. So criminology sort of, it's absorbing, it's getting in. We're behind some disciplines, but also I think there's a lot of active interest in it and it's moving in the right direction. In fact, I'm a member of the European Society of Criminology because I'm a Cambridge, they just got an open science working group started. It's kind of like an ASC division going to be a part of that. And so it's growing over here. Crim, though, it's as a discipline, we're rather new to these open science practices, but that's fine. I think it's in large part a function of a lack of training in graduate programs and a lack of professional incentives to learn these things. You know, people have a limited time 
And if you have to learn these things in an unstructured way on your own and you don't get rewarded for doing them, it makes sense not to learn this stuff. I learned it because I'm a colossal tech nerd and I was just like, I'm just going to beat my face against it. And also because I, I like programming, which is a wrong thing with me, but that's the way it is. Like it's, I got into it early, but I think it's really important. And so I sort of try and spread it to other people. Right. Okay. And then I think, you know, kind of the million dollar question as we're talking about this, why is this important? Why is reproducibility important? Yeah, well, I have strong opinions. But first thing we'll do is a slight clarification there is that for people listening is that there's replication and there's reproducibility. So replication is when you run a new study, say collect new data on the same topic. And if you get similar results, you say it replicated. Reproducibility is running the same study with the same data and the same method and getting the same results. In other words, reproducibility is what I call the lowest possible bar that research should pass, that if you do the exact same thing in the exact same conditions, you should get the same thing. This is specifically, I'm speaking to quantitative work. It can be, there's not really reproducibility in the same fashion in qualitative work. You can't be in the same context. Time has passed. But for quantitative work, it's the lowest possible bar. It's a basic verification of results. In my opinion, this is something I yell at my students every single term that I teach research methods or whatever. Any study that isn't reproducible can be trusted only on faith. So there's sort of a basic thing. If something doesn't have reproducible materials, reproducibility, you're just taking it, trusting that the person who did the work or people who did the work did what they did correctly. Now, I'll say this probably later, but science is a trust-based enterprise. But still, unless you got a really good excuse not to, it makes a lot of sense to just put your stuff out there so people can see what you did. On that front, the secondary benefit of that, if you put what you did out and people can see every little thing you did, people can learn from every little thing you did. I very commonly go and look up code people have used to generate things in papers. And I go and I see, oh, that's a really nice way of doing that. I can see how things are set up. It makes it easier to do my own analysis. Sometimes I, you can wholesale use people's code that they use to clean and process the data. That's beneficial. It's labor saving. Other things is you can use it to, say, change little things things and see how well somebody's study, how sensitive it is to little changes. So I did some replication work a while back on a paper published in Criminology and Public Policy. And I was like, how sensitive is this to changing certain assumptions built into it? You know, it's like a lot of it's still like replicated fine. Some things are more sensitive. You can't do any of that stuff or know it unless people make reproducible materials available. In my opinion, you know, just making something, your materials available, it conveys that you're being open and science, you know, is about you know, the knowledge enterprise should be as transparent as possible. So I think it's just, to me, it's sort of just, it's obvious, you know, it's, there are potential downsides, but the downsides are usually if you do something wrong, it's easier for people to catch it, which is good for science. It might be hard for the individual, but, you know, it's good for science if people can see what you've done. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm glad you brought up the distinction between reproducible and replication. Yeah. And I think part of the reason why people might be a little wary of being so transparent as, you know, like you said, people can catch an error, but I feel like people get scared of someone's not going to send me like, you know, a kind email saying like, Hey, I noticed went wrong. You know, maybe it's something you should look into just that you should know. I think they're worried that someone's going to like link the thing on Twitter and say like, look at this idiot. Like, this is bad science. You should not listen to this person. Everything this person's ever done is absolutely worthless. Like, they're not to be trusted, right? So I think people are just afraid of, like, this burn it to the ground pitchfork and, you know, flame backlash that they might get if they do make a mistake or if someone finds out that they made a mistake. Yeah. And I think that it's absolutely fair. And I don't want the discipline to turn into an econ economic seminar, but you know, it's, you know, people can get cooked in a place like that. But at the same time, you know, it's important for science. I think it requires a bit of a cultural shift of becoming somewhat less defensive about these things and just more open to it and acknowledging that, you know, when things get complex, it gets easier to make mistakes. And I mean, what can you do? If there was a problem with it, you should correct it and you should be able, I think one thing that it should be done is, you know, if a paper is changed by an honest mistake, I don't think it should be like necessarily retracted or something, but you know, you might have to update the record on things, stuff like that, but people are scared of it. You know, I I do totally understand that. But one thing I find is when I started publishing all of my like paper code up online, 
my code got a lot better because I was scared of those things. You know, I'm scared that I'm like, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm scared. Made me document my code better, made me much more careful with it. So it's been good for my personal because of that actual sort of that fear of it. Do the best job you possibly can. And if you've done the best you can, you still make a mistake. You know, it can happen, but it's better that someone know about it than you making a mistake and it remaining totally hidden. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, we have a paper under review right now and with the idea that we want someone to be able to take this code, you know, hit the run button and just have it spit out what it's supposed to. And, you know, we double, triple, quadruple, quintuple check the code, make sure everything that, you know, someone could look at this, you know, we worked on Stata, so look at this do file and be able to follow along. Like, okay, I see what you did here. I see what you did there. Okay, so I'm on board. I think that's a good thing. Okay, and so, you know, and one of the ways that people argue, like, you know, we've been talking about is that we should be open science and that we should be very transparent. And one of the ways that I feel like people have started to gravitate towards is pre-registering studies with the open science framework or OSF. Something else that's also kind of started to creep up is journals. So making it a requirement, I feel like some of them haven't gone all in with it quite yet, but some have where you're required to provide like your coding for your paper. Do you think these are good approaches to reproducibility? In general, yes, but with some caveats, some some complexity to that. So I think open practices should be motivated by a philosophy of science. So the basic idea is pre-registration makes sense to compensate for, for problems in the hypothetical deductive frameworks, the hypothesis testing, deductive research like that. But it doesn't compensate for problems in exploratory research because those same problems don't exist. I still pre-register exploratory work, but really it's very brief. It's just saying, I'm going to look at some stuff. And that's basically it, right? So pre-registration makes a lot of sense if you're going to be running, in my opinion, if you're going to be running RCTs and evaluations, you need to do that stuff. So for that, it makes sense, but it's not like a thing to do with exploratory work or something. What I think in general should be done is something like OSF, Open Science Framework is a great place for putting it, but it also doesn't necessarily, it often is weird if you're doing stuff with observational data, secondary collected, you know, secondary data and stuff. It's OSF stuff is weird hoops to jump through. We still use OSF for the PhDCM. Anyway, what I think in general, though, is people just need to be more open and honest with what they're doing in papers. So there's no shame in doing exploratory or descriptive work. And people who are doing exploratory and descriptive work shouldn't feel compelled to take something to discover in there and turn it into something that looks like deductive work. It should be okay and better, and, and it should be treated as healthy to say, I was exploring and I found some weird shit. Let's go and look at it and let's talk about it, right? You know, and just be like, and do it. And I have other papers we're going to be working with PhDCN that are kind of like that. We don't know what we're going to find because it's new territory on this life course stuff. So we're just going to explore it. Later, we'll pre-register papers that are going to do hypothesis testing that are looking different things. But once we've seen that pattern, we can't then go and register a hypothesis testing paper where that's like double dipping. There should also be no shame in updating pre-registrations. This is one thing where people are often afraid that, oh, doing a pre-registration locks me in. And if I get the data and I look at it, it's impossible to do things. No, you can update your pre-registration, but it just keeps a record that what I originally intended to do was this, but then I discovered the data are unsuitable. So I had to change my methods in this way. It just keeps you honest. You know, you can be flexible. So we pre-registered. I've got a paper under review. One journal, we pre-registered for that. We've got this, the PhDCN stuff we've been doing. We pre-register and we just say, if we had to change and deviate, we just say exactly how we deviated and provide a justification. It's more flexible. So it's not that rigid. With regard to sharing code, there is nearly no reason ever to not share code, except the case where if your code in some way would identify participants or otherwise compromise an ethical thing, your code should be shareable. Typically, if I have code that has to act directly on a respondent, like say code that this respondent was killed, you know, it's really easy to identify somebody by death records. So you have to figure out ways to anonymize that. Maybe the fact that they died and the matching stuff is stored in a file that's not shared and not like you don't put their respondent ID directly in the code. You kind of have to figure out stuff like that, but we still, you make the code shareable. Data though, data can be murky. In criminology, especially, there's a lot of ethical, legal, and sometimes professional barriers to data sharing that I'm actually quite sympathetic to. I mean, you know, when you're talking about people self-reporting their offending, 
if the data are in any way back traceable or something, you can put a barrier on it. You can say people have to get permission from the study authors to get. That's what we do with the PhDCM. You know, you can request access to our replication data. Just send you push a button on Harvard Dataverse. It sends an automatic email, and an admin person will be like, "Yes," and they'll send you the data. But it's just one little barrier to prevent to make it so it's traceable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, we agree. We pre-registered RCT here in Denver. And yeah, we had to kind of work around some of the identifier stuff through our coding. And like I said, like I spearheaded the qualitative data stuff. And that's like a whole different kind of worms when it comes with it. Because if you made it like publicly available, you just end up with this document that's just like, it looks like you got it from the CIA, just like completely redacted. So, you know, it's challenging, but I think that's where we should be going. So I'm in complete agreement. But okay. That's all the questions we had for you today. Thank you so much for, I'm so used to saying joining us, but you know, <laughs> unfortunately things didn't go like they normally would. So thank you for just joining me today. You know, it was a pleasure to talk to you. You know, you've mentioned some work, but is there anything you'd like to plug? Anything we should be on the lookout for coming out in the near future? Uh, well, uh, well, theoretically, but I can't really reveal thing. I still got some stuff under review. That's some fun stuff in communities and crime work that I'm hoping should be out in a little bit. Other than that, I would say I will plug that if folks are interested in reproducible research and in open materials and things like that, feel free to reach out to me. My materials are open access. I'm happy to give suggestions and advice on how people can implement those practices and also like, you know, teach research methods, things like that. Because I think these things should be core parts of social science PhD and like master's and MPhil programs. Anything I could do to help facilitate that. If you have questions or anything, I'd love for people to reach out. Perfect. And where can people find you? You know, mentioned you have your own website. Are you on social media at all, like Twitter? I'm a lurker, kind of like you. Every once in a while, I tweet or retweet something, but I typically am not super active. It's more website and email. Yeah, if you Google Charles Landford, you can't miss it. Okay, perfect. All right, well, thank you again. Really appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk with us. Yeah, thanks. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jose. (laughs) Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time. time.